do this. Um, it's good to be together. Uh, who knows why that is? I'm sure I ruffled some feathers the last time I was up here, but here we are. Let's do it again. Um, so uh, I am an Enneagram 8. Um, and now when I say that, I'm sure there's plenty of people in this room who will go, oh, yeah, that makes so much sense now. And then there's others in this room who are like, what is an Enteogam? Like, what, what the heck is going on? Is this one of those kinds of churches? Um, and that's fair. Uh, the Enneagram does kind of sound like this religious hierarchy karate belt system uh, where like, you gain a little bit more enlightenment with each step where it's like, yes, I am an Enneagram 8. Or Enneagram eight. You're a two? Don't worry. With enough time and money, you too can be like me. Yes. But no, that's not, that's not what it is at all. Um, in fact, uh, when I first heard the word Enneagram, I got lost too. Um, but it's really just this big $10 word um, that means nine points. And it's, this, and it's a word that we use for a nine-focused personality typing system. Um, now, I realize that there's a million different personality typing systems in the world. There's like uh, the Myers-Briggs and DISC and the color tests and the animal tests and strength finders. And if you're in the corporate world, it's like, okay, which one are we doing this month? Um, and you're probably just getting exhausted by it. Um, but for those of you who do know those things, like I'm an ENFP, DI, blue lion, whose primary strength is woo. And if you tracked with any of that, I'm sorry. Um, and I think we should start a support group for those who have personality type inundation. It's just too much. Um, so anyway, I'm an eight, um, and not just any eight, but I am an eight with an eight wing. Uh, and if you get that joke, okay, I'm, I'll try to keep the inside jokes for the Enneagram to a minimum. But, so let me explain. Um, it's, the Enneagram is this nine-part personality typing system, and uh, as I see it, it exposes participants to different ways of being um, or existing in the world. And not just like, by, like you get to choose one, but who you were designed to be, who you were designed to be to participate in this world. Um, and there isn't necessarily a hierarchy of those numbers. Like a nine isn't necessarily better than a one. And a nine would tell you that. They would be the first people to tell you that. Um, the numbers are merely just kind of markers in the system. Um, they could have used colors or animals or varieties of milk, and it probably would have pointed towards the same thing. It's kind of funny to think about if people were varieties of milk. Like, I like to think of myself as like unpasteurized cow's milk. Um, and Mike Cook would be like soy milk. <laughs> or just water, maybe. Um, anyways, I'm getting distracted. Uh, so the Enneagram, and we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this this morning, but, and trust me, it is important to where we're going. Um, but here's, here's the nine types uh, as follows. So number one, we have the perfectionist. Uh, number two, the helper. Number three, the performer. Number four, the individualist. Number five, the investigator. Number six, the loyalist, number seven. Are there any sevens in the room? That's exactly what a seven should sound like. That's right. Uh, those are the, the enthusiasts. Uh, number eight, the challenger, and number nine, the peacemaker. So I'd like to stop right there for a second and say, 
If this is your first experience with the Enneagram, you're going to be tempted to look at these labels and go like, oh, that's me. And then you're going to nudge your partner and be like, yeah, yeah, that, and that's you. And I just really want to encourage you not to do that, especially if this is your first swing at it. This is a much bigger and deeper and more complex pool. Uh, and if you're interested, I would love to help you jump into it uh, and wade into the waters of the Enneagram. And, there, and there's a lot of people here who would also enjoy that. My friends Andrew and Cody and Jolene. Uh, and a long, there's a long list of us that would love um, to give you the tools in that. Uh, like, just, just for example, my community group has done it three times over the last five years together. And each time we walk away kind of shocked by how much more there is to it. There's wings and subtypes and virtues and vices and wounds and stress points and health points. Um, and all of it just makes up this picture of who we are and what we were made to do in the world. Um, it's been a gift to me and it's been a gift to my marriage. Um, and it's kind of given me the language um, for who I am and things that I've felt for like the last 20 years. So it's been a really cool thing. Um, but anyway, I want to give you a little overview of what it means to be an eight. Like I said, I, th I do think that's going to help us um, this morning. And so this is just the little Cliff Notes version of, of things that I relate to when I read and study uh, what it means to be an eight. So eights have been told they're too blunt and aggressive. Uh, eights enjoy a good verbal skirmish merely to see what others are made of. Uh, eights can sniff out people's weaknesses the first time they meet them. I'm really making a case for why you should be my friend, right? Uh, we make decisions fast and from our gut, and we're very skeptical of super nice people. Me and Joy, we've had this really weird, uh, tenacious relationship since we met eight years ago. I was like, she's way too nice. Um, <laughs> And you do not mess with people that hates love. Do not mess with people that hates love. Um, so mottos or mantras, these are things that I've adopted in, in my life. Uh, a good offense is better than a good defense. It's why Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback of all time. Uh, lead me, follow me, or get out of my way. Um, disagreement is my love language. And... Uh, if God wanted people to wear their hearts on their sleeves, he would have put them there. Um, so that's kind of, those are some phrases that point towards, you're getting a really like a microscope into my soul here. Uh, this is an excerpt from one of my favorite Enneagram books called The Road Back to You by Ian Cron and Susan Stabile. It says, eights love, excuse me, eights lust after intensity. They are high-voltage human dynamos who want to be where the action and energy are. And if they can't find any, they'll cook it up. Eights have more energy than any other number on the Enneagram. They're fiery, zestful, earthy, full-throttle people who drink life down to the dregs and slam their glass down and order a second round for everyone else at the bar. <laughs> Eights don't need a marine band to play hail to the chief to let a group of people know that they've arrived. When an eight walks into a room, you feel their presence before you see them. Their larger-than-life energy doesn't just fill the space, it owns it. Whew. I feel known. The first time I read that, I was like, that is, that is the mirror that I've been trying to find this whole, my whole life. I was like, finally, somebody understands. Um, and if you're sitting in the audience, you're like, oh, man, that sounds like me. Of any of the other numbers, I might actually think you're right, um, because eights, 
is the only number on the Enneagram that I've found that actually like being the number that they are. Um, they actually enjoy, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're like, absolutely right, I'm an eight. What do you, what's it to you? You got a problem with that? It's like there, there's a little bit of pride that goes into being an eight. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I read that and I was like, I feel known. I feel heard. Um, and I don't mean like in an arrogant way. I mean it like, like in a feeling type of way. Like um, these were not new feelings. These were not new things that I had felt or that I had experienced. Uh, they were things that I'd be f- been feeling and thinking for the better part of 20 years when I first read them. Um, and I just never really had the words or the language to share that. So finally I did. I, ha- I had words to put around um, who I was and who I was becoming. And it was this tool that exposed me to that. Um, before I kind of felt like I was a nuisance, you know, like I was a black sheep and I knew that I offended people with my thoughts and my questions, but I didn't know how to like fix that or turn them off. Um, and so the Enneagram has given me some of the permission and some tools and some filters to work through that. Um, from a young age, I can remember having a very low tolerance for authority, um, especially authority without purpose, like substitute teachers. I have like all these stories, you know, like I have all these stories of just abusing substitute teachers. And if you are a substitute teacher or have ever been a substitute teacher, I'm so sorry uh, for people like me. Um, but my, and uh, so like excuses, like being an adult or because I said so or because I'm your mom, like those really didn't fly with me. Um, and to be fair to my parents, uh, they figured that out um, pretty quickly. And they did an incredible job exposing me uh, to different discovery outlets. And they gave me a ton of autonomy at a, ton, at a young age. And probably too much, but at least up until this point, it's worked. Um, I think the way that I think about my parents now is that they gave me every opportunity to learn how to think. But they never or rarely did they ever teach me what to think. And I, I just have an incredible appreciation for that now. Um, all that to say uh, is I have always been one to wonder and to question and to push back. And really, uh, God and Christianity and the church were not excluded from that in any way. Uh, in fact, most of the time that they got the brunt of it. Um, when, I was, when I wasn't pestering and harassing my parents and my substitute teachers, I was uh, taking my youth pastors and my Sunday school teachers to task. And in my mind, there was no question off limits. I literally, that old cliche, you know, there's no bad or stupid questions. I took that literally. Uh, and so I'd ask everything. Like, there's that basic list, that Sunday school list of questions. You know, I was like, so how, how actually did God create the world in six days? That just doesn't line up for me. Or, you know, how is it possible for someone to rise from the dead? Can, you, can we explain the science? I'm like seven and asking this. Uh, or how did Noah fit all the animals in the boat? Or how did Jonah breathe while he was in the belly of the whale? And then I'd get a little bit more abstract and be like, why, so why do bad things happen to good people? And they would, they would tolerate me with that. Um, but then I, I got older, and my thoughts became a little bit more complex. Uh, and so I would start presenting these thought experiments, like 15, 16, 17 years old. And so I'd be like, if Jesus is from Palestine, then why does he look Swedish in all of our pictures? You know, or like, 
Um, if Jesus really defeated the devil on the cross, then why does, he come, why does the devil come back at the end of the book and then Jesus has to defeat him again? Like, if the Bible is supposed to be written by God, why did all of a sudden he stop writing? If Jesus asks us to love our enemies and wants us to pursue peace on earth, then why did our pastor just use his power and authority to support and advocate for war? Like, if heaven is so great, if it's so awesome, then why are we so sad when people go there? And so I had these swirling, swirling thoughts and questions in my head, and every once in a while, I'd find somebody who was willing to entertain them for me. Um, but more often than not, I get an answer like this. They would say, like, Paul, all the answers you need are in the Bible. And that's all the truth that you ever need to know. And I said, but if all the answers to my questions are in the Bible, you can't answer them. Haven't you read it? Like, well, shouldn't you know all of them then? They said, Paul, you just have to trust. You just have to have faith that there are so many things we won't know until we've been finally reunited with God. And then I would pause and respond and say, reunited? Didn't last week you say that God is always with us through the Holy Spirit? And if he's always with us, then do, why do we need to be reunited with him? And they would sigh and roll their eyes. And then they would say, well, I guess you'll just have to wait to get to heaven, and then you can ask God all the questions you want. And they said, but wait, you just said I could find all the answers in the Bible. Like, what is this? And so then they would truly just walk away. Um, yeah, gracefully, yes. Um, so I began learning at a young age uh, that there were certain questions you just don't ask in church. And I understand the irony of that right now more than ever. Um, and then even more than that, there were certain questions you didn't ask, and there were certain people you didn't ask questions to, that somehow their position or their degree or their status in life had made them exempt from having to wrestle with these mysteries. Worse than that, these questions actually caused people to like, question my faith. Uh, they weren't comfortable with my uncertainty. Uh, they didn't like that I was willing to rock the boat or tear down the house. Um, and so my peers and teachers would approach me and question my salvation. And if they didn't like what I had to say, then, then they would distance themselves from me. Um, and so my, my community then became attached to the perception of what, um, of what I believed. And in order to stay in that community, I had to follow along um, with with a certainty that became synonymous with faith. Uh, not only did I have to believe it, I had to, I had to be absolutely certain of it without any shadow of, an, of doubt that it was true. And so I played along, even to the point that it became fairly comfortable. But inside, like if I was honest, I was so incredibly lonely. And all I wanted was somebody to say, Paul, you know what? That's a great question. And you, I don't have the answer for you, but I'd love to go on a journey to find it together, even if that means we never actually do. And I, was, I became so sick of having to apologize for my wonder. Um, and at the same time, I knew that there was something bigger happening. I knew that there was something to this. Uh, and I just needed to figure out what it was so I could finally try to get some answers. Jersey on the wall, high school gym in my hometown. 
corner by the scoreboard where the bleacher seats fold down. 27 took the Tigers to the finals that year. That's not why it's hanging there. an incredibly powerful song. The first time I heard it uh, a couple years ago, I had like, was covered in goosebumps, and I'm covered in goosebumps right now, too. I have like this visceral reaction to the words in that song, um, especially that sentiment in the end of the chorus that says, forgive me, I'm just asking. Like, why in the world should I have to apologize for asking? And that's why I'm so incredibly thankful for this community. Uh, I'm not sure I would have stayed in the game as long as I have if it wasn't for the Storyline community and for a man named Mike Gathright, who finally said to me, you know what, Paul? That's a great question. 
And I don't have the answer, but I'd love to go on a journey together to find it, even if that means that we never actually do. And so now he's opened that door, or this door, for me to ask those questions with all of you. And I, frankly, I'm done apologizing. And I'm done believing that my faith has to be conflated with unquestioned certainty. So the last two weeks at the gathering, Mike has opened some spaces for conversation about things that seem counter or counterintuitive to the life of faith. Two weeks ago, he asked the question, can we have ambition and still live a life of faith? And then last week, he asked, can we have fear and trepidation and still have a life of faith? And the answer, the quick answer to both of those questions is yes, uh, but I'd encourage you to go back um, and listen to those. But this week, we're going to ask a similar question. Can we be uncertain of anything and still have a life of faith? And as you may have heard up until this point, I grew up believing that the answer to that question was no, that my faith had to be attached to my certainty, or as they liked to call it, the truth. And any questions or wavering from that truth put my standing with God in question. But like the good Enneagram 8 that I am, I pushed back against it. And it's not that I thought that they were wrong, but their unwillingness to let me question and ask. Really, more than anything, it just made me curious. And so this morning, I'd like to start a journey Uh, And I don't think we'll come to the end of it today, um, but I'd love to start a journey where we can maybe try to find some clarity around this idea of certainty. And more so, is it required for us to live a life of faith? So to do that, I could think of no better way than following the instructions of those youth leaders and Sunday school teachers and senior pastors when they said, everything you need to know, Paul, is in the Bible. All right, if you say so. Um, So we're going to dive in uh, to this beautiful library of books in order to get a clear picture of what the life of faith means for us. So, yeah, we're going to have ourselves an old-fashioned Bible study. Uh, And I'm sorry if that flares up any PTSD, uh, or as like my friend Dave likes to call it, PDSD, post-denominational stress disorder. Hopefully that doesn't rile any of that up in you, but I really truly believe that there's something in these ancient stories for us. Um, So here we go. In the book of 1 Samuel, there's this incredible story about the first king of Israel. Before we get into the scripture, just a little context here. Uh, I'm going to nerd out for a second. And unfortunately, I don't have all the time I'd like to paint the full backdrop. But the short of it is this. So the the Hebrew nation is enslaved in Egypt, right? Uh, They're under the thumb of a pharaoh, and they're building the Egyptian empire as slaves. Um, And so until uh, Moses comes onto the scene, um, and he delivers these people from slavery. Uh, Marlon Brando, I mean Moses, comes in and he yells at Yul Brenner and he says, let my people go. And that was the moment I, th- I knew all Egyptians were white. Um, <laughs> and so after some incredible things that happened like raining frogs and rivers turning to blood, yeah, I've got some questions about that too. Um, the Egyptian pharaoh releases the entire Hebrew population which he had enslaved to build his kingdom. Every single one of them. He says, fine, you can go. 
which is fantastic. We should celebrate that. We should celebrate uh, a delivery from slavery. That's the theme of this book, uh, except the fact that this group of people, this Hebrew nation, now had nowhere to go. All they had was a promise from their God that they called Yahweh, that they would be delivered into the promised land. But they had no idea where this land was and how that they were going to get there. So they wander around the Middle Eastern desert for 40 years. Now in 2020, 40 years maybe doesn't seem like that much time, but 4,000 years ago, the average lifespan was somewhere between like 33 and 37 years. And so you're talking about wandering for a lifetime. Even in 2020, we can admit that this is two generations. 40 years is two generations that have passed. So to think that anybody would still remember what it was like to live under the oppression of a pharaoh, there would be very few people that would actually recall that or actually maybe even lived it. Um, and so after 40 years of wandering, um, they arrive at this promised land, and they name it after their forefathers. Uh, or they name it after one of their forefathers. Um, they call it Israel, uh, which literally translates into wrestles with God. It then takes nearly 400 years of conquest for the Hebrew nation to then capture and colonize this promised land. And so this is where we pick up the story in the book of Samuel. Now you can picture modern-day Jerusalem, right? It's the largest city in the Israel-Palestinian region, and I'm sure you can picture the sprawling ancient buildings and the temples, but also the modern industrialized centers as we've seen them on the news, but imagine that region 4,000 years ago after 400 years of battle and conquest. These Hebrew people had some work to do, and the guy that was leading the charge um, near the end of that conquest period was a, was a guy named Samuel. Um, and so in chapter 8, we pick up where Samuel is reaching the end of his life, and he's finishing this conquering of, of the Philistines and the Canaanites. And so he appoints his older sons to take over judges uh, over Israel. And the Bible says that they were doing a very good job. It said, excuse me, that they weren't doing a very good job. It says, but they were not like their father, for they were greedy for money, and they accepted bribes and perverted justice. Glad we figured that out 4,000 years later. Um, so the nation's elders gather and come to Samuel and say, your sons aren't cutting it, and we need a king. So up until this point, Israel had not had a king, and that was on purpose. They did not have that authority figure who had powered over their people. They had the law of Moses, which we now call the Torah, um, or and it was in, in the Christian Bible, it's the first five books of our Christian Bible. And then they had God, or they had Yahweh, and they had some religious judges who would help interpret that law and apply it to the way that the Israeli people were living in the world. It was a ruling body of people for the people. But when these sons of Samuel started perverting the word of God for selfish gain, the village elders came to Samuel and they demanded that he appoint a king to rule them. Essentially asking, to, we need to know what is right and wrong, and we need a king to tell us, to rule over us. Every other nation has a king, why can't we have one too? 
So Samuel's not a huge fan of this idea, right? Um, but remember, it's not his decision to make. And so he goes to God, and the, the Bible recounts God's words like this. It's, uh, God is saying, do everything they say to you, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. So let's pause there for a second. What would a king have meant? Why was it so important to these elders? And why were Samuel and God so frustrated by that request? Well, a king would have meant that there would have no longer been any challenge or wrestling or debate or discourse about the way things were supposed to work. A king would just mean that there would be no more wondering about what was best. It would mean that it was his way or the highway, and it, wouldn't, and it would have meant absolute certainty. And one can understand why the Hebrew people would want this, right? Like, in a perfect world, a king would make things comfortable. It would mean that someone else could just do all the dirty work of the judging and interpreting, and then they could just live their lives in comfort. Certainty can mean comfort. And the comfort that would come with a king was what they wanted. They wanted to be comfortable. But the whole point of this nation, of this Hebrew nation, is that it would be different that they had a different law and a different path and a different God, a God of goodness and grace and love, and that all of those things come with mess. But I guess here we see that the Hebrew nation has just had enough of it. So Samuel does as the Lord asks. He comes back to the elders and he says this, This is how a king will reign over you. The king will draft your sons and assign them to his chariots and charioteers, making them run before his chariots. Some will be generals and captains in his army. Some will be forced to plow in his fields and harvest his crops. And some will make his weapons and chariot equipment. The king will take your daughters from you and force them to cook and bake and make perfumes for him. He will take away the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his own officials. He will take a tenth of your grain and your grape harvest and distribute it amongst his officers and attendants. He will take your male and female slaves and demand the finest of your cattle and donkeys for his own use. He'll demand a tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. And when that day comes, you will beg for relief from this king you are demanding. But then the Lord will not help you. Remember, these people are now 400 years removed from living under a king or living under a pharaoh. They haven't lived enslaved. They haven't experienced the oppression that comes when a man gets put in charge. The story continues. But the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so, we still want a king, they said. We want to be like the nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle. They didn't want to hear it. They were indignant and they wanted a king and they wanted to be like everyone else because that was just going to be more comfortable and that was just going to be easier. But we know how the story goes. Within the next 500 years, that prophecy would come true. The nation of Israel had become a national power in the region, but at the cost of enslaving its own people and oppressing the poor and the marginalized. And then a new nation 
the Syrians came and wiped them out. And for the next 1,500 years, the nation of Israel would live under the thumb of an oppressive empire. I wonder what would have happened if they would have heeded Samuel's warning, if they just would have listened to their God, if they trusted that despite the mess that comes with a life of faith, despite the lack of certainty a king could offer, I wonder if they would have eventually realized that it would be the best life for them. So during that time of oppression, these prophets began rising up. Maybe, you, maybe you've heard names like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Habakkuk and Amos and Nehemiah and Malachi. They began rising up and they, would, they, were, they started preaching and prophesying that one day God would again deliver them from this slavery, that he would once and for all send a king of all kings, that he would send a redeemer who would crush the kings of the heathen nations that shackled them. It would be a final judgment of certainty on the rest of the world. And so now we find ourselves 2,000 years removed from Samuel's warning. The location is the same, but now that Hebrew nation is under the oppression of its third king since Egypt. The Roman Empire was ruled by a Caesar claiming to be the son of God. He has come and he's conquered Israel and he's claimed it as his own and he's stipulated a crippling tax on the Hebrew people and he's forced them to bow to the empire or fall victim to a traitor's death on the cross. And onto the scene comes a man named Jesus. And his followers also claimed him to be the son of God. And it was because of his miracles and his, and, and his teachings and his goodness that they called him that. It's because he brought with him hope and grace and mercy. And he preached a message of inclusion and love. And he brought good news and compassion to the poor and the enslaved. And he spent time on the margins of society healing people's physical and spiritual wounds. And the Christian tradition now believes that this is the king that the prophets were talking about. This man named Jesus was the king sent by God to redeem the world and restore it to the way it was supposed to be. But he didn't come with an army, and he didn't come with a sword or a shield or a fleet of chariots. He came with a message. And here's what I love about Jesus. Almost every single time he was asked a question about that message, he would respond with a question. Over a hundred different times in the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus, he answers a question with a question. This king, Jesus, didn't bring with him certainty. He didn't bring with him comfort. He brought a space for all to gather and to wonder. And he brought radical inclusion and space for doubt. And my favorite example of this is in the book of Matthew near the end when Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus, he's just hours away from being executed. He knows what's coming next. He knows that the, that the Roman guards are about to come and execute him by way of capital punishment for claiming to be the Son of God, which was a crime of treason and defiance to the Caesar. He knows what's coming. And instead of running or instead of fighting back, he goes to a garden to wait and to pray. 
And while he's praying, he asks God this question. He says, Lord, is there any other way? One version of Scripture puts it this way. He says, my father, if there is any way, get me out of this. He's asking, is there any other way for this will to be done in the world? There has to be another way. Why, God, why? And if that isn't doubt, then I'm not sure what is. This is Jesus, who we now believe to be the Son of God, to be fully God and to be fully human, questioning God, questioning Himself. And right here, in this moment, we see that faith and the willingness to participate in the gospel of grace does not come without doubt. And in fact, it is in the doubt that we find the faith necessary to move forward. Jesus goes on to say, but please, not what I want. You, what do you want? Not my will, but yours be done. This is a great scene from the movie Stranger Than Fiction um, with Will Ferrell and Dustin Hoffman. Um, and if you've never seen it, uh, I highly recommend it. Um, yeah, and I, I meant for it to give us a little space to ponder that idea, because in this, in this movie, uh, Will Ferrell plays a character named Harold Crick, and Harold Crick has found himself in the narration of somebody else's story, that somebody's story that is, is, is writing, um, that they're writing for him. And in this scene, Harold finds out that in order for the story to finish, and in order for it to be this author's masterpiece, he has to die. And so his, his therapist, Dustin Hoffman, is telling him this. And it's this moment where Will Ferrell says, is there any other way? Like, can't the story be just as good if I don't die? I promise I'll be better. I can do things differently. And Dustin Hoffman says, no, this is her masterpiece. And you have to die in order for that to be the case. And so that, that is the greatest story ever told. Not stranger than fiction. That story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is that same story. Uh, it's Jesus through the gospel of his life and his death on the cross and the hope that comes with his resurrection. And he's asking us to play a role in it. He's asking us, all of us, Every single one of us. He's asking us to set aside our need for a king so that we can follow him into the gray and nuanced and messy and beautiful world of grace. All so that we can love this world. This world that we are in right now. The world that our feet are planted on right now. So we can love this world right again. And I cannot express this point strongly enough. Your questions do not disqualify you. And your doubts do not disqualify you. And your failures do not disqualify you. And the pain you feel because of that loss in your life, it doesn't disqualify you. No, it is the very breath that is in your lungs that qualifies you to play a role in this story in God's masterpiece. If you are breathing, 
You are the beloved creation of the God of the universe, and that God wants to use you to love this world right again. And he knows the only way this story is going to be better is if you do. That's what qualifies you. That is the gift of grace. And it's on us to figure out what we do with that qualification. And I do need to say this. You are more than welcome to exclude yourself. And we're not going to judge you or question that. You're more than welcome to exclude yourself. But do not for a second think that someone or something is preventing you from being a part of this divine dance party that is the life of faith. One of my favorite authors and thinkers, Bob Goff, who's like a 15 on the Enneagram, he says, uh, Jesus just draws a circle around everyone, and he says, you're all in. And what I hear when he says that, I hear him say, bring all of that baggage with you, and we'll figure it out together. If you don't want to, that's fine. But we're going to go and love the world right again, and we'd love for you to join us, and we actually think we'd be better off if you were in the circle with us. But getting there, getting to that point of accepting our own acceptance, of accepting our own qualifications, requires us to let go of our certainty. The Apostle Paul says that we are saved by grace through faith. So embrace that faith. And let go of control. Let go of the God that that we've contrived in our head. The God that is scared by our questions. The God that is inconvenienced by our failures. The God who can't handle our pain because that's not God. At least not this one. And of that, I am absolutely certain. Let me go. 
mother God I've made you when my fear has contained you help me let you go help me give up says this in the second verse it says when the way is unclear and the answer is elusive he is different by far than our broken conclusions you are not the god my pain has conceived you are deeper and stronger than my eyes can see and i can't think of a better way to say it than that if you're like me and you found yourself caught in the deep weeds of questions and doubts Welcome. This is a community where we want you to know that we don't have all of the answers, and we're not going to pretend to, but we'd love to go on a journey of finding them together, even if it means we never actually do. In two weeks, on March 8th, we're going to start creating a space to ponder some of these questions. We're calling it the forward because that's the least cheesy thing that we could come up with. Um, but it's merely just a space for you to find community in the deep weeds. We'll, we want to create a space to discover and explore the life of faith in the gospel of grace. So friends, may you find grace within the doubt. May you know that God is not calling you to perfection. He is not calling you to certainty. He is calling you to participate despite it. May you find comfort in the community of faith, a group of fellow wanderers and wanderers who embrace the questions and the nuance. May you know that you are qualified, not by anything you've done, but by the, but by the very life you live, baggage and all, and may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Have a wonderful Sunday.